If you would, let's turn to, to Matthew chapter 9. I told Pastor this morning that his, his message uh, was the perfect setup uh, for my message tonight. It's, it's kind of cool how God works out that way sometimes. And, uh, you know, this is a very common missions passage. Uh, many missionaries, you know, share this, and it's uh, something that people use in missions conferences and things like that. And I really want to kind of point out three different things that, that Jesus uh, went through. And if we want to have the missions heart of Jesus, it's essential for us to have these three things. So let's look in Matthew chapter 9, starting in verse 35. It says, And Jesus went about all the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues and preaching the gospel of the kingdom and healing every sickness and every disease among the people. But when he saw the multitudes, he was moved with compassion on them because they fainted and were scattered abroad as sheep having no shepherd. Then saith he unto his disciples, the harvest truly is plenteous, but the laborers are few. Pray ye therefore the Lord of the harvest that he will send forth laborers into his harvest. You know, Jesus spent uh, about the first 30 years of his life at home. That was the tradition for uh, Jewish men. They would stay at home and they would learn the Jewish customs. And then typically they would learn the trade of their father. And, of course, Jesus' earthly father, his stepfather, was Joseph. And Jesus probably learned that, those carpentry skills from him. And then at the age of 30, Jewish men would kind of launch out on their own and either continue the work of their father or start their own business or whatever. And Jesus, of course, uh, his uh, ministry was not his earthly father's. It was his heavenly fathers and he goes out at the age of 30 and uh you know when you look at the book of matthew chapters uh, five through nine jesus is doing his public ministry but it's largely being done alone it's jesus uh, interacting with people and, and and kind of engaging in the work of the father by himself he does have a few people follow him around but this passage is the bridge between his personal work and utilizing trained disciples to help him in the harvest you know, Jesus, you know, part of the plan of God is that the work of the Heavenly Father is not done by just one person. The work of the Heavenly Father is not just done by a pastor or a missionary. It's done by all of us. It's, it's done by all of us believers. And so Jesus begins to use trained disciples uh, here. Here is where he kind of launches them out. And in verse 10, it, it, it kind of goes, I mean, in chapter 10, it goes on from there. So Jesus, even himself, uses trained disciples in the work of the ministry. And as I mentioned, there are three things here that we're going to look at. And if we want to have the mission's heart of Jesus, the first thing is uh, right there in verse 36. We have to see it says that he saw the multitudes. You know, if you look back at the verse before that, it says that he went about all the cities and villages that was right there in their area. He traveled extensively. He taught in their synagogues. He preached the gospel of the kingdom. He was healing the sick of every disease. Uh, among the people. So this, this wasn't like a, like a sightseeing trip. He wasn't a tourist. He wasn't just out checking out the cool coffee shops and all those kinds of things. I mean, he was actually engaging people in the work of the gospel. He was traveling all over. He was meeting the needs of the people. And as we know from other stories, when he healed people, many times he was touching them. He was engaging them. So Jesus was actually getting his hands dirty in the work of the ministry. Jesus was going everywhere. He was engaging people and he was doing the work of the gospel. All over his area. And if we want to have the same impact in the world around us, we have to see people. You know, I think one of the greatest tools of Satan uh, has been distraction of Christians. I mean, how, how many times do we even find ourselves thinking throughout the day 
about spiritual things as opposed to what am I going to do today? What, you know, what am I doing at work? And what am I going to do after work? What are my plans this weekend? And I'm not saying those things are bad. I'm just saying that Satan can use good things and he can distract us away from eternal things. I want to share with you a couple statistics that are probably going to be no surprise to you. But there was a study done a couple years ago on phone usage. So uh, this study is a couple years old, but as we all know, Americans have gotten better at using our phones less, right? Probably not. It's probably gotten even worse. So here's a study from 2018. It says uh, that a quarter of Americans, 26% of Americans reported that they were almost constantly online and almost half reported that they are uh, that they are online on their phones multiple times throughout the day for multiple hours. But those don't surprise you. So let, let, let's put some numbers to that. Uh, during that study, the average American adult, so we're not talking about teenagers, okay, we're talking about 18 and up, the average American adult spent at least three hours on their smartphone every day. And uh, most of these studies say that it was closer to four hours every day. So if you just take the three hours a day, this equals 86 hours every month or just around 20 hours a week, which is a part-time job. Right. A part time job that we are spending on our phones. OK, so if you if you take that number up to four hours a day, which is what actually was more likely, they say that two hours of that was spent on YouTube, Facebook, Snapchat, Instagram and Twitter, which are the top five social medias. So if you just take just that, those two hours, then the average American from the age of 18 to the average age of death would spend five years and four months straight on social media. Isn't that crazy? That's crazy. Five years of your life on social media. Now, listen, again, not all of these things are bad. Not all these things are terrible. We use social media for a lot of different things. I'm just saying we need to take a look at this, guys. Five years and four months on social media. And as we know, social media is only positive. It only brings us encouragement and joy and happiness, right? Five years and four months. It said the average American adult uh, checks their phone 80 times a day, eight zero, 80 times a day. We look at our phones on the average. Uh, most adults check their phones once every 10 minutes while they're awake. One in 10 American adults looks at their phone every four minutes. How do we get anything done? H- how do we accomplish anything? It said 31 percent of adults feel anxiety when they're separated from their phone and 60 percent feel extremely stressed when their phone is off or out of reach. You know what what really brought this study home for me and kind of uh, I actually read this a couple of years ago. And at the time, uh, Desmond wasn't born yet. Kinley was just two. And um, this this came out and said that there was a second grade teacher who asked for students to write about an invention that they wished had never been created. Out of 21 students, four of them wrote about cell phones and one little girl wrote, if I had to tell you what invention I don't like, I would say that I don't like the phone. I don't like the phone because my parents are on their phone every day. A phone is sometimes a really bad habit. I hate my mom's phone and I wish she never had one. And then she drew a picture of a smartphone with all the apps and everything with a big circle and an X over it and 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 a sad face saying I hate it. And that's where it hit me. That's when I thought, I mean, I, I'm, I was nowhere near these numbers, but the last thing I want is for my kids to, to hate my phone because that's what they see of me is that I'm addicted to it. 
Now, I will share with you an embarrassing fact. Uh, there is this really ugly feature on iPhones that you can see how much time you're spending on your phone on specific apps and all these things. And so a few years ago when I did this study, I, I looked up on my phone to see what my phone usage was. And it was just under an hour a day that I was spending on a game. Okay, just under an hour a day on the game. But let me first say I was really good at it. Okay, I mean, really good at it. I was in a league that we played. It was Madden, by the way, Madden Mobile. So I was in a league. We played football all the time. I was one of the administrators of the league. We were in tournaments every single day. I was a top contributor to my league. Everybody. I mean, it was awesome. I was really, really good at that game. And after I read that study, I remember telling Megan, I was like, I got to delete Madden. And it, I, this is embarrassing, but it was difficult. It was really difficult. I let the team down, guys. I, I let my league down that I could no longer play Madden football because I realized I couldn't handle it. I couldn't have this game on my phone because I couldn't just play it casually 10 minutes a day. You can ask Megan, if I'm going to do anything, it's going to be all in. And if I'm going to have this stupid game on my phone, I'm going to play it an hour a day. And so for the uh, benefit of my family, for the benefit of hopefully my spiritual life, I got rid of that game. And it's, it's, uh, I, I encourage each of you to go home maybe tonight and look at your phones. Uh, but unfortunately, it's not quite as trivial as that. Um, we know that from social media studies... Over a five-year period, um, suicide among teenage girls exploded. Severe depression exploded. During this time, half of the girls said that they spent five hours or more a day on their phones. Uh, I mean, these stats don't surprise you. I, I could go on and on and on and on. But the fact of the matter is that we have been distracted. And if it's not the phone, it's a hobby or it's throwing ourselves into our work or whatever it is. But if, if we're distracted, even if it's a good thing, we will never see the people around us. And if we never see the people around us, how will we ever make a difference in their life? The second thing is right there in verse 36 as well. It says that when he saw the multitudes, he was moved with compassion on them. You know, you think about that word and, you know, compassion is an emotional response that always results in caring action. The Greek word that's used uh, for move with compassion is the strongest word for pity in the Greek language. It describes the compassion which moves people to the deepest depths of their being. It's actually formed from another Greek word that refers to the bowels. So it was this gut-wrenching reaction. It wasn't just he saw people and he felt bad for them, but he had this gut-wrenching reaction from what he was seeing. And, and the question is, so what is it? What was it that was causing this reaction? If you were here this morning, it's no surprise to you, but the scriptures tell us right here in front of us, it says he was moved with compassion on them because they fainted and were scattered abroad as sheep. Having no shepherd. There's another version that says that they were confused and helpless. It's referring to their spiritual condition. He wasn't just this gut wrenching reaction because they were hungry or because they were they were tired or because they were needing work or things like that. He was moved with compassion because of their spiritual state. If you were here this morning, it was a great, great explanation 
of what was going on back then, of how obviously that's never what God intended. God never intended for it to be this money-making scheme for the religious leaders. And there were actually people that were in Israel that were longing for a relationship with God. They were looking for that encounter with God. So they would go to the temple, because where else am I going to find this? They would go to the temple, and all they would find are people taking advantage of them. They would find people, as Pastor said this morning, they would bring a lamb, and they would find something wrong with it, so they have to go spend money on that and change their money over. And all that they knew of God... And the temple and religion was just work and I'm never good enough. And there's rules and regulations and requirements. And when Jesus sees the people all around Israel, he realizes that that is not what God has for them. A few chapters later, Jesus himself says, come to me, all of you who are who are tired, who are who are heavy laden. And I will give you what rest. So when Jesus sees this encounter, when he's seeing the people, he's traveling everywhere and he's healing them and he's preaching the gospel. He's seeing people who are confused and helpless and misled. And all of the leaders and rulers in their life are just taking advantage of them. And he has this gut-wrenching reaction. Because he came to give them rest. They were like sheep without a shepherd. And as Pastor mentioned he, he came to, to be that for them. He came to set them free. And they killed him. Imagine the emotional turmoil that Jesus went through when he experienced this. Imagine when he went back home to, to Mary and Martha and Lazarus' house and he's laying in bed awake at night as Pastor described this morning and he's just thinking, I have the answer for them. I can solve all of their problems. You know, as I look at, at his reaction, I think, um, first of all, I also want to point out that we in, in, in Cape Town, a, a large portion of our ministry is with Jewish people. Uh, there's about 30,000 Jews that live in our little area of, of the city. And so I have to tell you that it's exactly the same today. All of our Jewish friends are still following all of these rules and requirements. And some of them don't even know if God exists, but they're still doing all these rituals. It's heartbreaking when you see people around the world that are misled. But I think about how Satan can take something like compassion and he can hijack it in the Christian's life. Because how often have we seen somebody, and for the record, I hate this part of the message because it's so convicting to me, but how often do we see somebody who is different than us, who maybe uh, acts differently, dresses differently, believes in different things, even really important issues, maybe they vote differently from us, and the last thing that we have for them is compassion for their spiritual state. Man, that's hard, isn't it? I mean, we all have neighbors and friends and family that we just don't like, we don't get along with, we don't enjoy hanging out with them because they always talk about this one thing and I hate that one thing and I don't talk about that one thing and it never works because I agree differently and they agree this way and every time we talk about it, it's a really big mess. But if we want to make a difference in their life like Jesus, we have to have compassion for them. The person who drives us crazy the person who believes so differently than us that we feel like we're being attacked every time we're with them, oh, we have to have compassion for them. Because if it weren't for grace in our own life, that would be us. 
you know, I, I, I'm not trying to, uh, to put anybody down today because I'm telling you, Megan and I, especially me, I'll just speak for myself, forget Megan, I myself am the king of this. When there's someone that I don't really get along with, I'm like, why would I want to go to lunch with that person? If there's someone that I really disagree with, we've talked about the thing we disagree with a million times, what's the point? But if we want to have the mission's heart of Jesus, and if we want to engage our culture and make a difference in the world like Jesus, we have to. We have to. We have to seek out those relationships. We have to know that our neighbor is so different than us that anything we talk about is going to be a problem. But we have to seek out that relationship for the sake of Jesus. We have to put up with awkwardness. We have to put up with, with, with being made fun of. We have to put up for being called old-fashioned or outdated or whatever they're going to call us for the sake of Jesus. And we have to do it graciously. We have to do it gently. We have to come into these church buildings together and pray and say, man, I really messed up. I thought I was doing well. I was talking to this person and I love this person, but I really said something and it really sent him over the edge. Would you pray for me? We have to seek these relationships out. We have to. We have to. For the sake of the gospel. If we want to engage our culture and make a difference in the world like Jesus, we have to see people. And we have to have compassion for them. The next thing is in verse 37. After having this gut-wrenching reaction, it says that, Then saith he unto his disciples, The harvest truly is plenteous, but the laborers are few. Pray ye therefore the Lord of the harvest that he will send forth laborers into his harvest. The bottleneck is the workers. Right? It's, it's not that the harvest is lacking. It's not that, that, that the need of the harvest is gone. It's that the laborers aren't there. The laborers have lost sight of the need and the vastness of the harvest. We don't ever see people. We don't ever engage people. And we certainly never have compassion for, you know, for them. So why would we ever go out and work? Someone else will do it, right? Isn't that why we pay pastors and missionaries and those people? Isn't that what they're for? But Jesus here is telling his disciples, there is too much work to be done for just us. We have to pray to the Lord of the harvest that he will send more. And let me just side note here, the ones that he's telling to pray for more laborers in the very next verse, he sends them out. So it wasn't like, God, would you use me? It's like, God, you are going to use me. You are using me. Would you call more? That's what this prayer is. I live in uh, central Virginia whenever I'm in the States. That's where I grew up, uh, right outside of Lynchburg, Virginia, about actually about 30 minutes outside of Lynchburg. Uh, I'm surrounded by farms. Uh, I didn't live on a farm, but all of my neighbors are farmers. And uh, I know enough about farms to know a few things about, about the harvest. And that's why I love that Jesus uses this analogy. He didn't just say we have a really big job and not enough people, but he specifically used the harvest. A few things about the harvest are that they're time-based, Right. Even if you're not a farmer, you know that there's a time to, to, to prepare the soil, a time to plant, a time to harvest, a time for all of these different things. And there's a very specific time for the harvest. And if you do it too soon or too late, you can miss out on the full reward of the harvest. It's time-based. I think that's one of the perfect ways that we talk about this spiritual harvest that Jesus Christ was talking about. It's time-based. Another thing about a harvest is that you have to know what you're doing. 
I can't just walk out to a cornfield and start picking off ears of corn one at a time. I don't know how they do it, but it's not that way, right? Like there's a faster way to harvest corn. There's a faster way to harvest things than I know. So not only is there a right time to do it, but there's a right way to do it. You have to be trained and know what you're doing and be ready for when the time comes. And as we look at the spiritual harvest ahead of us, we have to be ready and we have to know what we're doing. So what, what does that mean? First of all, we have to be at least semi-trained on the Word of God. And I'll tell you, sometimes it's just as simple as sharing your story with people. If you tell people, man, listen, I don't know all the answers. I'm still learning. But I was messed up. And Jesus accepted me. And he's helping me be a better person. He's helping me make changes in my life that are helping me to be a, a better person that glorifies God more. And I want that for you. It could be that simple. And as you begin to share with them, God will open up their eyes and work in their heart. What does it mean to be ready? I mean, you know, what's that time thing mean? I mean, usually in our relationships that we have in Cape Town, we are seeing people and talking with them at least daily or weekly. And we are we don't always every single time talk about God and try to beat it over their heads. But we are always ready. We are always waiting for that little window in the conversation where something gets more serious than just what's your favorite restaurant. Whenever that window comes up, we are ready. We are we are praying. We're saying, Lord, this is where they are. They, they have a little bit of an idea of who you are, but no idea of what you mean personally for them. So when I when that window happens, that's what I'm going to talk about. I'm going to talk about how personal you are. And we are ready that whenever the opportunity arises, we are ready to talk with these people. And if we're going to to have a difference in the world like Jesus, we have to be ready. We have to be ready and prepared and trained and ready to be to engage in the work of the gospel. I mean, can you imagine what Jesus was seeing? I mean, again, I, I keep going back to your message, Pastor, this morning. It was so perfect to share how emotional this was for Jesus. But can you imagine when, when, when for thousands of years there was a way that God set up things all the way back to Moses, the way that they could encounter God, the way that they could enjoy God, the way that they could glorify God, and they had gotten it so wrong. The, those leaders had, had gotten so wrong. And here is Jesus seeing his anger for those who are misleading people. And then he's seeing all the people who are being misled. And he feels so sorry for them. And he sees hundreds and hundreds and probably thousands and thousands and thousands of, 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 of Jews who are looking, who are seeking, who are good hearted, but just have no direction. And he just knows how much time he has left. And he says, I don't even have enough time to reach all of them. We need more. We need more. We need more. And that's why he tells his disciples, we've got to pray that God would, would, would call more. We've got to pray that God would, would, would utilize more people and, and, and get more people out of their distractions, get more people having compassion for people who are different from them. And engaging people in the work of the gospel. You know, Kinley, my daughter, is four, and uh, she just turned four in October. And she's in this really, really uh, fun stage where she doesn't like to eat. Those of you who have kids know all about this. It's, it's really enjoyable. So, Kinley, every meal, it's like a huge thing. And it's like, what are we going to do? Like, you can't, like, spank her every single meal, right? You can't, you can't take away her toys every single meal. You can't, like, like what are you going to do here? So, so we, we have all these different things we've tried. And we say, you know, if you don't eat this, then you can't have a Oreo at the end. Or if you don't eat this, whatever. So we have all these things, and it's still difficult. And now she has learned that we love to hear yes, sir, and yes, ma'am. 
So it's the most beautiful thing ever. We'll be sitting there at dinner. She has a full plate of food. And I'll say, Kinley, you got to take a bite. And she'll say, yes, sir. And then five minutes later, no bite's been taken. And I sit there and I look across the table and I, you know, I'll poke on her plate. Kinley, you got to take a bite. Yes, sir. Five minutes later and on and on and on and on and on it goes. And so now we're having these conversations. Kinley, I love that you say yes, sir. It makes me so happy. I love your manners. I love that you're responding right away. But you're still not eating. But I'm saying yes, sir, dad. Right. Like I'm saying the things that you want me to say and you're happy that I'm saying yes, sir. Exactly. And so now we're like, how do we put this in words? She can understand. Okay, Kinley, what if you asked me for a toy for Christmas? And I said, yes, I will definitely get that for you. And then I didn't get for you. How would you feel? Well, I would feel pretty sad. Yeah. Okay. so what if you asked me for water because you're really thirsty? And I said, sure thing, baby, I'll get you a cup of water. I didn't get a cup of water for you. How would that make you feel? I feel pretty bad. I feel pretty thirsty. Okay, (laughs) so do we have this figured out now? Yes, sir. And she's still not eating. And it's like it's like this most difficult thing in the whole world for a four year old. And you think about, well, hold on a minute. I think we can all see where this is going, right? You know, the book of James says, be doers of the word. And not hearers only. Be doers, not just yes, sir, people. And I thought, wow, maybe she gets this from me. And as we look at our own lives tonight, and I want to tell you that, man, I I feel like every time I share this message that I'm thinking of a few ways now that I'm getting distracted weekly. I'm thinking of a few ways that I'm a few people that I'm not having compassion for. So I'm right there with you. We pastors and missionaries struggle just like everybody else does. But if we want to have the mission's heart of Jesus, if we want to engage our culture and make a difference in the world like Jesus, we have to see people. We have to engage them in the work of the gospel. We have to have compassion for them. And we have to pray for help. We have to pray for help. You know, John 3.16, one of the most famous verses, probably the most famous verse in the Bible. It says, for God so loved the world that he gave. Giving was the reaction to love. And as we look at our own lives, as we look at our own schedules, at our own routines, at the way that we live our life, all of these things are fine and good. And as the Apostle Paul said in 1 Corinthians 13, all of these little great things about you are great, but they're all noisy gongs and, and clanging cymbals if we don't have love. And if we Christians don't have love for our neighbors, compassion for those who are different than us, those who are struggling, those who are greatly, vastly different from us in the way that they look at life, if we don't have compassion for them and engage them, if we don't have love for them, then why are we here? Why are we here? If Meg and I aren't constantly engaging people in, in Cape Town, South Africa, why are we there? Why are we taking money from 30 churches and a couple of individuals and going to Cape Town and doing something if we're not going to do this? The good news is that God is ready and, and, and able to use each of us tonight. 
If you have failed miserably in this way, no worries. So have I. So have, so have all of us. Maybe tonight it was the distraction thing that really hit you hard. Maybe you were great on the distractions, but the compassion for people who are different than you is the struggle, which is definitely me. Whatever it is that the struggle is, Jesus can help us with those things. He can utilize us. He can train us. I mean, look at who he used back then. Peter, I mean, all these guys were pretty un-God-like people. And he used them. As I look back at, at you know, I, I grew up in a Christian church. I uh, grew up in a Baptist church there in, in, in Madison Heights. Uh, went to Christian school. I, I, I was a good kid. I never really got in trouble. And my, what I viewed as my worth to God, I, God, God, I, like, God was happy I was on his team because I was a good person. And that's what I built my worth on. And as I, I look at the way that, that God... Jesus dealt with people the way that, you know, that's, that's what Jewish people believe today. I'm a Jewish person, so I'm good. God loves me. I'm good to God. I don't have to do anything else. And I think, man, I got it wrong for a long time. I look down at people who are different than me. People who didn't always come to church. People who didn't go to Christian school. People who got in trouble. I'm better than them. I didn't say that, but I, I sure felt that way. And I think if God can take me just a country boy from Virginia, and moved me to a city of six million people, and he can use me, then he can use anybody. But if we don't see people, we don't have compassion for them, and if we don't pray for more help, we'll never have the mission's heart of Jesus.